Welcome to the Ether. Today is Thursday, May 26, 2022. Today on the Ether, Cadena Eco presents Demystifying Stablecoins. Let's take a listen. Hey, everyone. Um, welcome to the first ever Cadena Eco presents. Uh, this series is meant to showcase and discuss various topics within different sectors of the crypto space amongst well respected individuals. Um, yeah, uh, who are talented in their respective areas. This week, we will be discussing stablecoins, their importance and misconceptions. Leading this tour space is Tyler Benser, who is the technologi- technology adoption lead for Cadena Eco, the innovation network driving hyper-growth adoption of the best layer one blockchain out there, Cadena. So without further ado, take it away, Tyler. Hey, folks. Great to be here back on Twitter Spaces. We have a really awesome discussion today on stable coins and i'm really really excited by the people we have up here on stage sergio matt and doug uh briefly on myself my name is tyler benster as uh jeff said i'm the technology adoption lead here at cadena eco i first got involved with cadena back in 2017 uh through my venture capital fund asimov ventures when we invested in cadena uh, and have been along for the ride ever since and more recently i've come on board uh working more hands-on uh, with Cadena to help drive the ecosystem growth and adoption. And I see in the audience uh, many builders that I've talked with in the past few weeks, and I hope I'll get a chance to talk with many more of you in the next few weeks as uh, we build and grow Cadena's ecosystem. So I'd like to introduce Sergio Mella, who is a serial entrepreneur from Italy who built and sold companies in Web 1, Web 2, and Web 3 across four continents. Sergio, would you mind telling us just a, a little bit more about your background? Hello, thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me here. Uh, yes, of course. I'd be very happy to share. I'm indeed Italian. You can hear it from my accent. You may not see my my hands moving as we speak here, but I promise you, I do. In true spirit of an Italian person, I did live uh, almost twenty years in Asia, all, and then I sold a company to a South African business. So I work in South Africa as well, and now live in the U.S. So. I've seen it all geographically speaking, but also I've been um, founding companies in Web 1, Web 2, and Web 3. So I've uh, also seen it all across the, the internet sphere. I've also been doing angel investments in, in some of these companies, and uh, I've um, I've seen a lot of stuff. So having seen a lot of stuff now, it's, uh, it's clearly um, natural that I'm attracted to interesting opportunities that have a lot of uh, room for growth. And that's why I'm here today speaking with Cadena. Fantastic, Sergio. Great to have you with us and very excited to hear your perspective on stablecoins from your your wealth of experience building and selling companies. Uh, Next up, we have Matt Teeter, who is with us and brings a wealth of TradFi experience as well as foreign exchange experience. Matt, would you please introduce yourself to the audience? 
Hi, everyone. Thank you all for being here. Uh, like you said, my name's Matt Teeter. I'm the co-founder of Lago Finance. We're building foundational DeFi components. Um, I was previously the co-founder of another startup called Travas. There we were building an algorithmic trading platform and institutional tools to help people navigate the crazy 24-7 world of crypto. Um, and like you said, before that, I was in TradFi. I worked a foreign exchange desk. We did about 100 million in volume every single day. Um, so I have experience in all kinds of currencies. And then I take that and then moved it on to stablecoins. So um, I've got a wealth of experience both traditionally and in the crypto sphere. Fantastic. And rounding out our panel today, we have our own Doug Beardsley, who's the Director of Engineering at Cadena and Technical Advisor to Cadena Eco. Doug, would you please introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Tyler. Um, I've been in the software world for 20-something years, uh, really just love the challenge of trying to build maintainable, robust software. Uh, it, it's well known that there's there's uh it's very difficult to get rid of bugs in software uh both both in web3 with smart contracts and um elsewhere in traditional software and uh i think we uh need to really focus on techniques that allow us to to prevent these kinds of errors from occurring and that's what what we've done at cadena that's what attracted me to the team here and uh yeah, I'm director of engineering now. Been with Cadena for four years, and uh, I'm a technical advisor to Cadena Eco. Fantastic! Well, we have a really awesome panel here today with backgrounds from entrepreneurship, from finance and tradfi, and of course, uh, hardcore engineering. And so, really looking forward to, to diving into stablecoins. Uh, for those in the audience that would like to get um, any specific questions answered please feel free to, to tweet out the space and draw more people into the room and also tweet out a question that you have and, and we'll monitor social media and, and get to any particularly um, interesting ones um, as we go on. Um, but just for starters, since I know we have a range of people in the audience with different backgrounds, uh, for those who don't know, what exactly are stablecoins? A stablecoin is a digital currency that's designed to have a value that tracks some kind of stable reserve asset. Typically, it's the U.S. dollar. Actually, right now, stablecoins are about 99% U.S. dollar backed. Uh, the TradFi equivalent you could think of would be like the HKD, the Hong Kong dollar. Um, so, yeah, they're just a way to really uh, reduce volatility for your assets. Fantastic. And those of us that uh, you know, exchange or buy crypto have probably used a stablecoin in some capacity as a trading pair. Um, but uh, obviously, stablecoins are widely used across crypto, not just in traditional centralized exchanges, but across the DeFi services and dApps. So uh, could I ask the panel to explain the usage of stablecoins with respect to DeFi services in particular and, and distributed apps? Yeah, I'll, I'll take a stab at, the, at just kind of like the, the traditional use. Uh, and I think it's crucial to adoption of crypto. Uh, lots of businesses that might want to use crypto in a real world need to actually pay employees or bills in some kind of fiat currency and bitcoin you know if if a customer pays pays a restaurant tour some uh, money for a meal and then bitcoin goes down five percent and there goes the the restaurant tours profits and uh so they they really need a way to be able to leverage the the power of uh, blockchains and, and DeFi and be able to do on-chain transactions, but not have the volatility that a lot of the cryptocurrencies have. So it's really, really crucial for bringing, bringing real-world use to blockchain, in my opinion. 
Right. So stable coins are this proxy for a fiat currency. And we've historically seen that fiat currency, at least for, say, the US dollar up until maybe 2022 was, you know, pretty stable within a couple percentage points. Maybe it'll be stable within 10 percentage points next year. Um, but uh, uh, whereas crypto has historically had uh, more volatile swings, uh, almost behaving like a high beta stock. Um, but, you know, stable coins have... Uh, a lot of utility too. Um, I was wondering, uh, maybe I'll direct this one at, at Matt or Sergio, um, if you could talk a little bit about um, stablecoin usage in decentralized bridges and dApps as well. Yeah, so stablecoins do have a wide range of uses. Um, some of the more typical ones would be like pooling on a DEX or being lent out or borrowed on a lending platform. On a bridge, they're normally used um, in a minting process. So you would lock them up on one side of the chain of a bridge and then you would mint them as a wrapped asset on the other side. This is a way to bring liquidity to a new chain that you're just trying to bootstrap themselves up. Um, some other more uh, complicated use cases are more like uh, market making and exchange backends. Um, there can be real power there, especially like from a more traditional standpoint of being able to move lots of money quickly and being able to take advantage of arbitrage opportunities. Yeah, generally speaking, there's uh, always uh, many angles to crypto and uh, just like the rest of crypto, also stablecoins offer a relief and a new uh, product feature also for uh, retail and small retail. A specific use case is um, uh, emerging markets that traditionally rely on very uh, complicated and clunky um, fiat systems or may not have the infrastructure for actual good fiat peer-to-peer -peer payments or peer-to-merchant. And so we've seen a lot of uh, uh, hyper-inflated countries that are started using stable coins for uh, phone-to-phone payments. Um, anything from Argentina to Philippines to um, Venezuela and all these countries, uh, you can really see it on Twitter. You just look for uh, phone payment and uh, USDT, USDC, and People really prefer uh, USDT on uh, on ERC20 or even Tron uh, these days in some countries rather than having to deal with uh, bank transfers internationally or um, local payment uh, banks. Uh, owning, uh, having a debit card with a bank account set up for uh, small micropayments in some of those countries can be way more complicated than just having a uh, mobile wallet with uh, a few tens of dollars in USDC or T or other. So the, the, it removes friction at all levels. Is that stable yeah, coins remove like... friction at retail level for such micropayments, uh, but also for uh, huge settlements between market makers and, uh, and financial institutions. So it all travels on exactly the same rails. Fantastic. Thank, thank you, Matt and Sergio. So I think there's sort of a couple elements here that we touched on that are really interesting and important. So uh, a first element is sort of this, this stability, um, as the name suggests, um, in terms of uh, store of value. Um, and in some level, this comes from, you know, really, for example, with the U.S. dollar, that, you know, we have to pay $3 trillion in taxes to the U.S. government every year collectively as a American society or else uh, the government will, you know, hit <laughs> with some pretty severe repercussions. Um, and as a result, there's massive demand for U.S. dollars in order to pay those taxes. And that provides, you know, this uh, huge demand and uh, some, uh, you know, stable um, value of what the currency will have a value in a year from now. Um, on the flip side, um, in terms of um, interacting with decentralized and um, trustless applications 
and domains, as we see in Web3 and crypto, um, having an ability to, to interact with blockchains and interact with different cryptocurrencies and smart contracts um, has huge value and hence the, the utility of a stablecoin um, that even if it is a one-to-one -one correspondence has additional utility that a fiat currency does not. Um, so I want to talk a little bit now about how stablecoins are actually made. Uh, and we see sort of two particularly prominent branches here, which are fiat collateralized and crypto collateralized stablecoins. Uh, could I ask the panel to provide an example of some of these stablecoins and, and also help explain uh, the difference between these approaches to generating stablecoins? Yeah, so fiat collateralized stablecoins are pretty simple. They're just a one-to-one -one back by USD or maybe very low-risk US-based assets like uh, commercial paper, stuff like that. Normally, it's just like you put a dollar in, you get a stablecoin out. The most popular ones would be like USDC and USDT. Crypto collateralized are a little bit more interesting because they're backed by other cryptocurrencies. So this opens a huge wealth of different opportunities and different ways they can be structured. Usually right now, though, that's Bitcoin or Ethereum just because they're the lowest volatility cryptos to back it with. Um, MakerDAO's DAI is actually currently the largest uh, crypto collateralized stablecoin. And um, there's also a whole spectrum of uh, gray area in between those two. That's, uh, that's why I hate to try to categorize everything crypto in, in two or three macro categories, because it's programmable money we're talking about here. So uh, it's programmable often on Turing complete uh, platforms or sometimes on more simplified ones. But the, um, if you look at the original um, crypto collateralized stablecoin like MakerDAO DAI, uh, today, they are also diversifying into not off-chain assets like real estate. And so that really opens up to uh, more traditional traditional finance uh, uh, investment mixes. You're talking about uh, having risk factors, liquidity considerations, and all that into the collateral rather than just uh, Bitcoin or uh, ETH. It's, it's way more complicated than that. So for the sake of, uh, of uh, allowing everyone to understand the basics first, uh, it's great to start from two categories, but we also have to understand that it can be way more complicated than that. Yeah, it's a spectrum. And so these are sort of maybe best thought of as, um, you know, uh, to what extent is a stablecoin fiat collateralized from zero to 100%, to what percent is it crypto collateralized from zero to 100%. Um, and then of course there's a, Another category, which uh, has been quite in the news lately, um, algorithmic stablecoins. Uh, so how do algorithmic stablecoins fit into this picture and, and what are they? So algorithmic stablecoins are quite a bit different. So they actually attempt to keep their peg to a dollar by controlling the supply and demand algorithmically. You know, there, there's the word. So uh, it was the seniority shares used to what, was, what this idea was based off of. Usually they have some kind of mint or burn functionality that's built into the token that allows them to mint when the token's above a dollar to do an arbitrage or to redeem when it's below a dollar and in order to get that dollar and make it the full trip to make the profit. Um, these systems have had a lot of issues lately. I mean, Terra Luna is very much the big you know, elephant in the room here. Um, but I think that overall, there are some, there's a lot of merit to these kind of systems. Um, I think that it, they just need collateral. I mean, without a form of collateral, it's very hard to make sure that uh, cryptocurrency is going to be able to keep its peg. So um, I think that while it's had a rough go of it right now, I think in the future, there's still hope for algorithmic stablecoins as an asset class if they can find a way to merge 
that arbitrage-like system with the collateral backing. So just, yeah. just let, I'll interject a quick question that um, might be in some other people's minds. Why would anyone want to pick between one or the other of these different types of stable coins, say between like a USDT or a USDC versus an algorithmic stable coin? Like why would, why would I want an algorithmic, al- algorithmic stable coin? Why would I want a, a like more centralized collateralized stable coin? So there's two main reasons. There's a lot of reasons why you would want to touch a stable coin. One is uh, to hold it, uh, and the other is to transact, so to settle a payment. If you're settling a payment, you you have to introduce the concept of acceptance. So the counterparty that is receiving the payment may accept only a certain type of uh, stable coins, either because they uh, don't like to pay ERC to ERC like Ethereum fees, therefore they prefer another network like uh, Tron or Algorand or, or Stellar or others, um, or because they prefer to hold, which is the first use case in a specific asset. Uh, so that's what usually determines the, the choice of what you would want to, to uh, have. And when it comes to holding and uh, setting aside, literally savings, uh, short term or long term, uh, then you have a lot more complicated dynamics. And that's uh, that's uh, either a DeFi ecosystem play, meaning uh, I want to part this amount of uh, value in a, in a certain DeFi product. And the way to park it there is to uh, use a specific stable coin. Or you may be attracted by uh, more single-sided incentive schemes. And again, I may point to the elephant in the room here. <laughs> we should probably talk about soon. Uh, how um, certain uh, lending platform uh, acquire users and, and use the, their attractive yields as um, as a marketing scheme. Yeah, so let's let's dive in right now to uh, the UST Terra Luna situation. Um, so for those who have been sleeping under a rock, um, some tens of billions of dollars in um, purported um, market cap got completely wiped out over the past couple of weeks as um, UST depegged from a dollar. I think it's been hovering around 10 cents or 8 cents or even a little under um, past day or so. And, and Luna has um, you know, completely hyperinflated from uh, some millions of, of tokens up to some trillions of tokens um, and uh, in a so-called death spiral. Uh, so, you know, how, I guess a couple of questions here, but one is, you know, how does, this sort of under collateralization of a stablecoin affect, um, you know, governance uh, tokens such as uh, UST and for Luna. Uh, we'd love to hear people's take on the situation. Well, there's a clear relationship between how under collateralized you are and how much risk the government token has. Um, in the case of Luna, obviously, they only had about like 20% collateral. So as soon as the domino started to fall, Luna became hyperinflated very quickly, I think much more quickly quickly than people really expected it to happen. Um, at the end of the day, though, uh, there's always going to be a trade-off between under-collateralization and capital efficiency. Um, they obviously didn't make a good trade-off and it being 20%, but I think at higher percentages, it can work out that the system um, can even itself out. Um, but really what it comes down to is that crypto is a predatory environment. I mean, if there's if any sharks smell blood in the water, they're immediately going to go for it. And I think that's part of what you saw with that whole debacle is that there were people who sensed that things were about to collapse and therefore they immediately went to move on that 
um, weakness. And yeah, we clearly saw what happened. Yeah, also the fact that uh, the non-regulated nature of, uh, of crypto allows for uh, uh, messages and promotions to, uh, to, to be go unchecked is, uh, is something that uh, will probably attract regulatory scrutiny here. So let's come back to that uh, regulatory side here in a moment. Um, but just want to kind of, um, you know, follow up on the, the Terra and Luna conversation. Of course, um, there had been a, a huge draw to to Luna based on um, Anchor and based on um, the 20% yield that was being provided. Um, now, of course, um, yield doesn't come in a vacuum um, where yield is being provided. <laughs> there has to be some source of um, cash flow. And uh, in the case of lending, there historically has not been um, interest rates um, that are sufficiently high to support a 20% yield. Uh, and so on some levels, it's just a matter of time before um, you know, people start to try and get out and then it becomes a race to see who gets out first and um, becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. Um, but, you know, there also is some potential advantages to having an under-collateralized stablecoin. Like, for example, um, the explosive growth of, of, uh, of Terra and, and Luna was, was spectacular in terms of how quickly the ecosystem grew, how fast um, projects started announcing on it. Um, and so I was curious if um, folks had any thoughts as to what are some of the risks and benefits to under collateralizing or, or over collateralizing stable coins? Well, it's a, it's a startup game. So any startup uh, uh, requires a bootstrap phase where they are definitely not counting on current revenue to sustain themselves uh, and they need uh, startup capital. And so you could see Terra Luna is a huge uh, Kickstarter where people with uh, members of the retail and professional financial environment would provide capital to, to have the whole ecosystem started up with a promise of, uh, of future revenue. Um, it just didn't work out. It's, uh, it's like a, uh, <laughs> any professional investor would know that uh, the infant mortality of uh, startups is very high. And uh, that was one of the casualties. Yeah, when you look at this, you really need to think about the two different classes of investors. Um, like you have kind of the retail folks who are actually using the stable coin and they would prefer over collateralization, you know, if they're being rational, um, the more collateral for them, the better. But from an institutional and issuer standpoint, they really prefer under collateralization because that, like I said before, that increases the capital efficiency. Like you said, that allows you to grow, Tyler, um, much quicker than your competition. I mean, I think a lot of why DAI has stalled out recently is the fact that originally they were the only game in town, but now as more and more uh, crypto stablecoins are launching, you get to this point where you have to start questioning, is 150% collateral really something that is going to be sustainable long-term? For my background in TradFi, I don't necessarily know if that's going to be the case. I think eventually there's probably going to be a more accurate ratio that comes out a more balanced ratio than that um it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out but i think at the end of the day they're always going to have these two groups and they're always going to be a balancing act between them to try to find the exact right ratio to make people feel safe and to keep things stable but at the same time to allow there to be um like incentive to make the cryptocurrency grow into a multi-trillion dollar thing that would actually be able to compete with like a major bank's like currency, basically. Yes, this balance, I suppose, you know, there's, you know, not a wrong or, or right answer to some extent, but, you know, in an under collateralized situation, it allows for very, very rapid growth. But 
um, that can swing in one direction or the other quite violently just because there isn't as much of a, um, an asset that's effectively pegging it. Um, and in an over-collateralized um, world, it, um, well, you, you have uh, less capital efficiency and perhaps slower growth, but um, greater lender protection. And of course, you know, the, the diversity of that basket of goods, um, you know, provides protection or doesn't, right? So if your underlying asset is highly correlated with, um, uh, with other underlying assets and they all drop, then um, you can sort of have a, a even lower collateral than you realize. Um, but I, I wanted to kind of uh, jump back onto uh, another interesting topic that I think Sergio brought up earlier when he was talking about stable coins and mentioned bridges as well. Uh, I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit, uh, because I think to a, a you know a, a lay person, a stablecoin and a bridge sounds like a very different concept. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the relationship and how the two um, might be intertwined? Yeah, absolutely. So, to put it simple, a bridge is a way to move an asset from a network to another network. It could be from a blockchain to blockchain, that's in the biggest use case. For example, you would want to bring uh, liquidity and value from Ethereum to Cadena, and uh, someone needs to set up a bridge uh, where an asset like ETH or in ERC-20 is uh, delivered to a smart contract on Ethereum. The bridge operator in a decentralized or more centralized way would uh, understand this deposit and issue an equivalent uh, asset that is wrapped on uh, Cadena. So this transfer is, uh, is a bit like uh, beaming uh, an asset in, in Star Trek. Um, there's many ways, many flavors of bridges, but that's uh, the simplistic view. Whereas a stablecoin is uh, uh, an asset that is issued and aims at uh, maintaining its value against uh, some other asset in, in, in parity. So the two are different, but there are some, use ca some cases where there's convergence. Um, for example, if you consider um, that ultimately a stable coin, uh, especially a fully collateralized USD stable coin is nothing more than someone depositing a US dollar in a bank account and beaming that into crypto and receiving that equivalent in crypto. So in that case, you could simplify uh, the most simple case of a, of a stable coin as just a bridge between uh, a bank like TradFi and DeFi. So would it be accurate to say that a bridge is kind of like su a subset of a stable coin? Bridges are stable coins, but maybe not all stable coins behave the same way as bridges? I could say that um, you could bridge a dollar into into crypto, and that's uh, that could be considered stable. But the stable coin is is way more than that because uh, is then uh, uh, offers a lot of opportunity for uh, for arbitrage for uh, um, for building value on top of off. Whereas a bridge simply delivers the the token without really thinking much of the, of the underlying collateral. Again, a bridge would not really allow for uh, tweaking the capital efficiency factor, whereas a stablecoin has all those knobs ready to be deployed. Ah, right. Yeah, bridges are always supposed to be one to one, I guess. The yeah, they're supposed to. <laughs> the the big uh, the big problems with bridges that emerged in the past uh, in the past years are uh, when you want to decentralize the operation. So when you want the, that someone in between the one network and the other 
and the receiving network to act in a decentralized manner. Um, on a theoretical level, that is the same amount of complexity that you will encounter in designing a new decentralized system, like a new blockchain, really. And of course, that opens up a lot of uh, attack surface, a lot of doors for potential uh, bugs and mistakes. Uh, where, of course, it's what we all want, uh, bridges to be trustless and decentralized, but, uh, but it's a bit of a challenge. Yeah, so I guess there's sort of a common theme here of uh, sort of a collateralization of one-to-one -one in some sense, right? So a bridge on some level is, is making a promise that, you know, if these tokens or assets are deposited um, on this blockchain at this smart contract address, that they won't be released um, while these other tokens or um, code representations have been allowed to, to float on the other blockchain. Uh, and so in that sense, you have this sort of perfectly collateralized one-to-one -one representation of whether it's, you know, Ethereum or Cadena to wrapped Cadena on uh, ERC-20. You have this one-to-one -one relationship. Um, you know, in, in some ways that is reminiscent of, of, of Stablecoin that has this sort of um, pairing as well. Although it doesn't, there's this other discussion we maybe will we'll pass on for now in terms of uh, what does it mean for Bridge to be under collateralized or over collateralized? There's probably some fun topics there. But uh, we'll, we'll stick to stablecoins as our, as our theme. Um, I wanted to kind of uh, switch gears a little bit. Uh, we've talked quite a bit about some of these collateralization approaches, about um, some of these uh, different uh, ways of building stablecoins. Um, I wanted to just finish the discussion in terms of how stablecoins are different to fiat currency apart from being um, purely digital. Yeah, so this actually kind of goes back a little bit to what Doug was asking earlier about why would you use an algorithmic stablecoin? So when you're looking at fiat currency versus stablecoins, um, a lot of like what USDC and USDT does looks very similar to what's happening. I mean, clearly it's digital. The settlement is much quicker. There are those benefits for it. But they have a lot, like if you go through the actual smart contract of USDC, they can revoke the money. They can blacklist addresses. I mean, it looks clearly very centralized if you actually look at it from a blockchain perspective. Um, some of these other more um, decentralized algorithmic currencies don't have any of this functionality. Um, and so from that, that really creates a more Web3-like potential for them in the future than trying to be reliant upon you know, fiat-based currencies that are essentially very similar to legacy banking systems. Uh, I, I like that you made that point. Um, and just to play the devil's advocate a little bit, uh, do you think it would be possible for, for someone like USDT or USDC to actually write the smart contract in a way that they couldn't um, like burn, slash people's accounts or freeze people's accounts, but they could only uh, like maybe inject new capital um, or remove it if people uh, like ask, ask to be burned? I do think it's possible. I think if they actually would decentralize some of their governance, that would be great for everybody involved. Um, because, you know, just because you can blacklist people doesn't necessarily mean it's not like centralized. Um, clearly, if everybody gets together and says, you know, oh, well, we need to ban North Korea from holding the stablecoin, then that's not a centralized thing. It would be the on them to actually like build a governance system like that, where everybody could come together and vote on these important things instead of just having, you know, one person with the keys to the kingdom to decide oh no you don't have it oh you're blacklisted you know whatever i mean but yeah there's definitely clearly a way forward where you could have a fiat backed crypto that wasn't um, necessarily centralized 
I guess as we've seen um, with, uh, you know, the recent events of uh, economic sanctions, even if there is a decent, a fully decentralized, like maybe this, this elusive unicorn of like perfectly safe, fully decentralized, stable coin, um, you know, you can always kind of blacklist blacklist people at the fringes, which, you know, what happened with various Bitcoin addresses, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, yep. the old adage that the internet would censor itself and then the communities would uh, work together to auto-moderate also, it's not very applicable in all, in all corners of the internet. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, so it, it's an interesting topic, frankly, we deserve a whole one hour of a conversation just, uh, just about that. I personally think that um, USDT and USDC uh, listen to their legal counsels and uh, prefer to play safe and have those uh, uh, opportunities, those uh, possibilities in, in written in the contract. So just in case one day they need to comply with certain orders or regulatory requirements, they, they could. I don't think they're going to use, they're using them on a, on a daily basis. Um, but th that brings me to my most preferred labeling of stablecoins today, which is decentralized or not too decentralized. And um, it, I think it suits better the definition rather than algorithmic or non-algorithmic. After all, what is an algorithm? It's a sequence of actions taken based on, on conditions. And we all operate algorithms in our brains when we act in life. And so do companies when they go by their business, they choose to uh, make one or the other choice based on uh, on the market conditions. And so uh, when USDT and USDC decide to mint or burn, uh, they are sure they use a smart contract and that smart contract is on, on a decentralized blockchain. But after all, it, they're using an algorithm that is coded somewhere in their corporate structure, they use some algorithm that is coded on a smart contract, and they're not labeled algorithmic. Um, so I prefer to say decentralized and centralized stablecoins. I think that there's a lot of knobs, there's a lot of uh, um, uh, variables can be tweaked in a way as a stablecoin works. Some are more geared towards uh, uh, self-sovereignty. Uh, some are more geared towards on-chain uh, um, collateral. Some don't necessarily have those requirements and, and pick more, uh, more efficient or more uh, compliant ways to work. Uh, in fact, in my brain, I have this spectrum of this table, this five dimension table where, with five different variables. And I try to visualize stable coins in a, in a fluid manner rather than just put them on a two by two chart. Sergio, I'd love to see a, a representation of that five dimension <laughs> sometime if you can uh, draw it out for me. Uh, but, Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I think it also raises um, a question that is is pretty widely discussed now about um, what the role of regulators is going to be in this environment, um, if any. Uh, I think it's quite clear that um, you know, uh, you look at the Department of Treasury or the Fed that there's been you know, some pretty serious conversations that seem to be happening um, in light of the uh, you know stablecoin implosion over at Terra. Um, and I'm curious uh, what folks uh, think about, um, given sort of this rapid growth in this area, you know, how would you respond to regulators' concerns over the stability um, of stable coins and um, you know, the potential risk to the over, overall financial system as uh, stable coins increasingly intermingle and, and tie up uh, entire, entire crypto economy, but also the um, traditional uh, Web2 and beyond economy? 
I'm probably in the minority here, but I actually welcome regulation to come in. Um, I think clearly you've seen that there are projects that can't accurately look at the risks of under collateralization. And therefore, they've caused, you know, billions of dollars of damage to the ecosystem. And I think this affects all builders equally. I mean, everybody wants to think of crypto as a reputable thing to be involved in. And um, like this clearly happened with Web2 as well. I mean, regulation came in and then it boomed, you know, 10, 100x from there. So I think that if regulation is done in a clear and thoughtful and methodical manner and, you know, it's agreed upon and um, they bring people from the industry in to consult on it and all of that, I really think that it would be a net positive for the industry over time. Yeah, a few months ago, I heard of a funny quote somewhere in an online forum where someone said that crypto is computer nerds rediscovering the reason that financial regulations were invented in the first place. And, you know, I'm sure we all have various points of disagreement on all kinds of financial regulation, but that kind of rang, rang somewhat true to me. Um, I have a lot to say about this. Um, so regulators started stepping into crypto uh, during the good old times of BitConnect. And that was obvious when a lot of consumers start getting scammed, uh, regulators have to step in. And really, they didn't have a framework to enforce anything uh, because uh, trying trying to assimilate uh, some of those ICO tokens to securities is a fair point. But really, the, the, the regulatory framework doesn't... Uh, doesn't uh, it wasn't written for crypto and that's a big problem that there's initiatives going on and if we look at uh, biden's executive order from i think it was february march um what it does really is to ask uh, half a dozen agencies to write research and uh, white papers and uh, recommendations about how to go by it and there's like a six months or a year time to do that do you know what happens in crypto in six months or a year? <laughs> Basically, by the time those research papers are finished, <laughs> they're obsolete. That, that's a problem, really. And by the way, that's, that's a research paper. And then it's going to take another probably one year cycle to, to get some stuff done. And, and so in two years time, crypto has evolved in a completely different beast. Um, the CBDCs, for example, are, are an interesting point where, where, where everyone's trying to work together. Uh, to, for, for governments to, to adopt digital currencies that are similar or have similar traits to crypto. CBDCs are central bank digital currencies. Um, and what people, a lot of the Twitter, uh, crypto Twitter uh, basically says, oh, it's centralized because it's a central bank, so it's not good. Well, I personally spoken to some central banks who are, in fact, very actively working on uh, uh, research projects to make sure that their central bank digital currency has the same properties of cash. So it can stay anonymous, can stay peer to peer, it can, and can really be private as we would all want. Of course, if you look at the other side of the, the ocean in, in China, and you'll see a completely different type of central bank digital currency. The, the beauty of central bank digital currencies is they are programmable, so they can be everything and everything else. But my point was that uh, stablecoin, which we're talking about, uh, are the perfect filler that will be the the blood in the financial systems until central bank digital currencies uh, come into place and central bank digital currencies can only come into place when everything else is regulated around it so when and if regulators will understand how to deal with crypto it's probably going to take two three years 
uh, we will finally have uh, have answers. But until then, um, crypto is going to keep outpacing regulators. Right on. Uh, you know, I think that regulation does bring uh, more ability for crypto to be used um, on a daily basis um, for people that have like a real need. Um, I know that for the state of California, if you're paying taxes here, you know, you either uh, pay it digitally and pay your fee via TurboTax or whatever you use, or you you have to mail a check in. <laughs> and it, it's crazy to me that, you know, there's there's still applications or use cases where you have to, to mail a check in. And uh, maybe this is me dreaming a little bit, but I would love to see some regulation coming to Sablecoin actually normalizing their use for other types of transactions. And uh, it'd be great if you could, instead of doing an ACH transfer or, or uh, um, you know, sending a check, uh, use crypto to to send some of these large financial transactions where having a record of when something is paid is actually quite useful. So it seems like uh, a lot of uh, actual utility here too. And we also need to demystify this because when you say use crypto, I guess 80% of the people will think about opening up MetaMask or a mobile wallet and going to their, their exchange account. But the truth is that the next five years of crypto will be uh, about onboarding users that don't necessarily need to know there's a blockchain behind what they're doing. And so that's the beauty. There's already a lot of cases where uh, money remittance uh, companies use crypto for a settlement layer to transfer money internationally. But the user doesn't need to know. They just need to have their traditional um, desk or app or interface, right? So there's many layers to it. And I don't necessarily think uh, the, the, when, when the rest of the 90 or 80% of the people will uh, be on board to crypto, they won't call it crypto. And that's beauty. So they won't, they won't know it's a stable coin or CBDC or, or Bitcoin or, 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 or Frax. They'll just know that they're sending money and it's working fast and well and, and settling immediately. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. I think that, that kind of focus on, on like user experience is really crucial. And that's, that's the key to actually bringing more wide, wide adoption to this technology. Yeah, let's go back in time. Let's think about when um, countries needed to build a core infrastructure like highways and airports and harbors, uh, heavy industry, all that stuff. Uh, did, they really, um, did they really foresee how the end user would, uh, would use uh, the highway or, or the train rail network 20, 30, 40 years later? No, really, you just need someone with vision to understand that if you build a good highway, eventually there's going to be traffic, there's going to be trucks, there's going to be cars, there's going to be self-driving cars, the buses. People don't necessarily need to drive themselves, but eventually uh, there's going to be a lot of traffic. And so this is what stable coins and bridges and, uh, and DEXs are today. We don't necessarily know how it's going to play out in the next three, four or five years, but we know that uh, uh, there's going to be traffic. <laughs> So given that we can conceive of all these, you know, potentially critical use cases um, that stable coins can move into in the future, you know, beyond just the, the store of value that they are today, beyond just the interfacing with the MetaMask and Coinbase's and um, DeFi exchanges of the world, but starting to interact with uh, many of the physical assets and organizations and companies and institutions that many of us deal with in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, I want to tie back to this discussion to Kadena um, and ask, how can stable coins benefit from powerful smart contract languages such as Pact? 
I think algorithmically backed stablecoins can benefit hugely from Pact. Um, I mean, right now with the state of Solidity, it's very complicated to program smart contracts, even if you're a really accomplished developer. Um, if you look at Frax, for example, there's over a hundred contracts that are written and each one is individually doing something different. I mean, I don't know about anybody else out there, but I, I can't go through that. And then, and they have inheritance and then like, you know, one contract is the same as five contracts. And I mean, it's just a mess trying to go through all of it. I think with Pact, what you have is by, um, you know, like slowing the language down and having it not be Turing complete, you really create a scenario where you take out all of that functionality that isn't necessarily needed to go from point A to point B. And you add much more, um, like uh, much better feature set and a much easier way to, to do things that need to be done and to do them in a safe way, not a way where you have to worry. You know, I like to say with Solidity, there's 10 ways to write it and eight of them are probably wrong and either are going to be gas inefficient or are going to lead to exploits. So I think Pact is really powerful and with the formal verification as well, um, where it tells you just line by line um, whether there's a mistake in the code or not. I think stuff like that is really going to bring crypto to the next frontier of people being able to build out what exactly what they need without having to worry constantly that, you know, there's going to be a major problem that's going to cause, you know, loss of funds for people, which is so important when you're a builder. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask one more question and then we're going to actually open up the floor. Uh, so if you're in the audience and you have a question you want to ask the panel, please feel free to request the mic and we'll try and get a couple folks up here. Um, I also see in the audience, we have, you know, really diverse range of people, people from the Kadena community. Uh, I see we got some lunatics in the audience. Um, and, you know, I want to be clear that we we absolutely, we love Luna builders and projects. Uh, and uh, I want to ask uh, for people that are builders um, on Kadena, builders on Luna, builders in crypto, uh, Web2 builders, what are ways that builders and projects can, can leverage Kadena's unique blockchain and smart contracts for their DeFi project or infrastructure? So I would say that, um, I mean, Kadena is just a great place for builders who are both like new to the industry and old school, like who are just coming from Solidity. Um, and like I was saying, Pact is much safer and easier to use than Solidity's. And I think that for DeFi projects, especially, this is super important. Um, like, I mean, if anybody's coming over from having to build Solidity, I think they would immediately be able to tell the difference in the ease of use in the security, like not having to worry as much about exactly how you're going to code something. Um, like I, I think back to like a few weeks ago now where the board ape yacht club debacle happened, where they had their land sale and there was so much interest on it that Etherscan actually went down. I mean, we really need more scalable blockchains that are out there in order to, you know, cause everybody wants to go and actually build something huge that, you know, millions and millions of people are going to be able to build on top of. And if you can't do that, I mean, there's really not much of a, of a reason to pull people from Web 2 to Web 3. So I think it's super important for everyone to start focusing more on scalability. Um, actually, uh, Lunar Crush, uh, they did, um, there was with uh, the founders of Kadena, they had uh, spaces where they talked together and they were talking about how this year, there's going to require twice as many crypto user onboarding as in the last 13 years combined. So, I mean, if you really just think about that, scalability needs to happen right now. Like not, not next year, not five years from now, not 10 years from now. It needs to happen right now or we're not going to be able to keep up with the amount of users. And, you know, if people get burned badly enough, I mean, there was a hundred mil hundreds of millions of dollars that was burnt in gas fees. I mean, that's just not acceptable for a chain. And I mean, if users get burned by that, then they may never come back to crypto again. So this is something we need to be working on right now. 
Right on. Uh, so with that, um, if anyone else in the audience has a question, feel free to go ahead and request the mic. Um, and if not, um, I'm going to be very happy because I have a bunch more questions that I would love to dominate the rest of the time with. Looks like uh, we have a question in the audience. Oh, there we go. Yeah, it looks like uh, connecting. Hey, uh, Hodel Dow, want to go ahead and ask your question? Okay. Um, my question is uh, this. Um... Cardena, uh, I I just saw from your from Cardena's um, Twitter page that um, Cardena is a proof of work blockchain. So uh, my question is, uh, why did Cardena choose to use the proof of work consensus algorithm? Because like most like newer blockchains now are using the proof of stake um 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 yes proof of stake um consensus algorithm so why did cardena choose proof of work because like um, proof of work consumes- cool hey doug do you want to take that question yeah sure i'll be happy to take that one um really the, the it kind of boils down to two things i think first of all uh, we think that proof of work is the most tried and true. Proof of stake is still relatively unproven. We've seen a lot of uh, well-known examples of proof of stake um, having some some falterings lately. And uh, but Bitcoin has been around for for more than ten years, and and everyone has a very solid understanding of how it works. And Cadena came at it from the perspective of. The reason people were investigating proof of stake was because they couldn't figure out how to make proof of work scale. And there's just so much value in um, getting the scalability thing working that uh, it it was a huge, huge attraction. And uh, Cadena has figured out how to make proof of work scale. And so from our perspective... Uh, like I, I can't blame other people from for investigating proof of stake. That's that makes sense to me. If you didn't solve the scalability problem, but we did figure out how to solve the scalability problem, and uh, that kind of opens up a whole new world and and revitalization for proof of work. Okay, thank you. Then my second question is this: um, Hey, uh, if it's okay, we'll the... come back to your second question as we have time. Um, also, want to try and focus the discussion on stable coins, so. Uh, feel free to stay on stage, and we'll ask you to ask your question in a moment. Um, but want to come to uh, Mahina is next uh, if you have want to ask your question. Yeah, I uh, just uh, heard someone name drop Frax. Is that part of Lago or Lego? How do you say it? Uh, no, we're not affiliated with Frax. We like it a lot. We we've been looking at it uh, very deeply, and we think there's a lot of innovation in the way that uh, algorithmic uh, stabilization has been made on Frax. Uh, especially in all the, the second order mechanics in the governance and in the automated algorithmic uh, money and market operations. Th- those are really interesting, but there's no affiliation. So just looking at that with a little bit more prime, basically? Absolutely. Sweet. All right. Well, uh, I fortunately have lost uh, other gentlemen with the second follow-up question so i'll just pause here for a moment if uh, someone else has a question feel free to request mike uh, otherwise we'll get to some concluding remarks well fantastic job to our panel it appears that we have completely solved the topic of stablecoin as there are no outstanding questions so thanks for all the the clarity and wisdom that we brought 
um, Sergio, from your um, serial entrepreneurship background and sharp analysis of the space, um, Matt, from your, your TradFi background and your uh, very thoughtful analysis of some of these different stablecoin approaches, and, and Doug, um, for your uh, technical engagement and feedback and um, uh, great uh, conversation topics as well. Um, want to thank everyone for joining us today. Um, and finally, uh, always like to end the Cadena Eco uh, Twitter spaces with just a, a shout out to all the, the Cadena uh, builders out there. If you haven't already taken a look at uh, the listener list here, browse through it and see all these freaking badass uh, Cadena NFT projects um, with all these PFPs. Um, we got an incredible community here and uh, just so thrilled that uh, everyone could join us today. And um, thank you. For those that are building on Cadena, you're our heroes. Uh, we're here to support you. Feel free to reach out anytime. We'll love to have you in some future Twitter spaces. Uh, and uh, for those that are Cadena curious um, and thinking about building, definitely check out cadena.io slash build. Um, we'd love to help you get started in your journey. Thank you for tuning in and catch you next time. Be well. Thanks for checking out another episode of The Ether. That was Cadena Eco Presents Demystifying Stablecoins. Recorded on Thursday, May 26th, 2022. For TerraSpaces.org, I'm Finn. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to keep listening, head on over to TerraSpaces.org slash donate and show some support. They say rapping is the gateway, bringing home great pay, checking that replay, sing along and we say nobody gives a fuck around my way. I make about three bucks for every thousand plays, so add it up and do the math on that. Financially speaking, why the fuck would anybody want to rap? But in this reality, the money comes from doing shows, but then where's the money go when you can't do the shows? I guess you could rap on Cameo, I've been asking all my friends if I can rap on the patio. Six feet, motherfucker, step the fuck back, doing a little magic, pulling rabbits out the rucksack. Not everybody's always in it for the money, looking like another crooked Sunday and I'm working Monday. So you know I ain't stressing, left debating great methods, amazed to play Inception, the base stay blessed. See, even with these huge sums of overall royalties, huge sums of money that go to the record label per playback can seem insultingly small. small. Many rights holders are making around three quarters of a cent each time someone listens to one of their tracks, leaving only some portion of that for the actual artist. Can't say they're making pennies, pennies per play. Until they can figure out how to turn a profit, their future will always be in question. But for now, investors see enough potential to continue to fund pennies, 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 pennies per play. Another day, another lesson. Living in the eighth dimension might be worth a little mention. Living in the Great Depression got a real regal feel. Reeling in another sucker fish out to make a deal just to make a motherfucker wish. Aw shit, now you only got two left. You know what I wish? We didn't have any loose ends. You know what I miss? Listening to excuses. Now we're on the fence like we forgot how to choose. That's what happens when people don't know what's true. In the dark, eating bullshit up like a mushroom. In the lunchroom, just trying to laugh it off. Meanwhile, foaming at the mouth like a rabid dog. Like a fake mate and call at the zoo. It's looking like the view is getting disappointed too. I'm working on the new shit, trying to produce it. It's what I'm willing to go through when I'm making my music.